want to take uh, this opportunity to welcome our uh, television audience, and we trust God will uh, bless you for tuning in to our services today. just want you to know that we have just established a new website for the church that I think you'll greatly appreciate. Uh, same address, edgewoodbaptistchurch.us. But I know sometimes you're not able to get the complete message on the broadcast. But now you can get an audio version of the message each Sunday on the website. So please take advantage of that. and We would greatly appreciate it. And we trust again that God will bless you for listening in on the message today. Well, last Sunday we began a, a new three-part little mini-sermon series on easy believism. Uh, by looking at what easy believism is and where it leads. Now, before we get into the sermon notes today, and I hope you picked up a copy of The Edge, because on the inside you'll find the sermon notes, but before we actually get into the sermon notes for today, let me give you a brief review of last Sunday. We discovered that easy believism is affirming the truth about Christ without surrendering to Christ. Easy believism puts all the focus on the benefits of Christianity while neglecting the cost. The fundamental lie of easy believism is that you can receive Jesus as Savior to go to heaven without submitting to Jesus as Lord. But we clearly saw in the Scripture that Jesus Christ died as Savior of the world. And then He rose again from the dead to be Lord of all. When God offers the gift of His Son for eternal life, and remember, eternal life is in Christ. 1 John 5 says, He that has the Son has life. So when God offers the gift of His Son for eternal life, you either receive all of Him or you receive none of Him. How foolish to think as God offers His Son as a gift, you can cut up Jesus. You can divide Him and say, oh, I want that Savior part, but nah, not that Lordship. Those who refuse Jesus as Lord cannot receive Jesus as Savior. But we clearly saw where that leads. And it leads right into an eternity of hell very, very tragically. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, why does he put the emphasis on doing the will of his Father? Because inherent in salvation is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And since obedience is the only thing that can validate that a person has submitted to Christ as Lord, is the reason Jesus puts the focus on obedience. He also said that on that last day, that day of judgment, there will be many that he will look at, and he'll say what? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Now notice the two outstanding characteristics of easy believism. They profess Christ, while at the same time they what? Practice lawlessness. 
They per, I think of Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but, their de- but by their deeds they deny Him. Their actions deny Christ more loudly than their words proclaim Him. And bottom line, how can anyone claim to be a Christian without being a follower of Jesus Christ? J.I. Packer, one of the uh, great, great Bible teachers in uh, recent years, summed it up very well. He said, simple assent to the gospel, simple intellectual assent to the gospel, divorced from a transforming commitment to the living Christ, is by biblical standards less than faith and less than saving, and to elicit only assent of that kind would be to secure only false conversions. What has been the fruit of easy believism? Easy believism has produced a number of people who call themselves Christians, but whose lives are absolutely indistinguishable from the world. Easy believism has produced a counterfeit Christianity that's described in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, an outward form of godliness or religion, while denying its power. Easy believism has greatly weakened our churches because our membership roles and our pews are filled with people who remain unregenerate. But the greatest tragedy of easy believism is the multitude of people who sincerely believe they are on the road to heaven when in reality they are on the road to hell. Now, today's message is on how to discern genuine faith. As we discovered in the first message, everything that calls itself Christian is not necessarily the real deal. And this is especially true concerning genuine saving faith. See, easy believism equates saving faith with nothing more than believing the facts of the gospel, but without any surrender to Christ. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for the penalty of your sin? Do you believe that He rose again from the dead? Would you like to ask Him to forgive you of your sins so that you can have absolute assurance that heaven is your home? Well, then pray this prayer after me. Beloved, we must forcefully counter the deception that simply affirming the truths about Christ, just simply agreeing to the facts of the gospel is equivalent to saving faith. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, which is the focal passage for our message today, we discover a series of tests for all who profess Jesus to be their Savior to determine whether or not their faith is genuine. So please follow in your sermon notes And let's begin by looking at James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, I want you to underline what is the key phrase. And this key phrase governs the interpretation of this entire passage. And it's that little phrase, if a man says he has faith. Underline that, circle that. If a man says he has faith. Notice, James does not say 
This person actually has saving faith, but that he simply claims to have it, despite the fact he has absolutely nothing to show for it. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Then James comes with a follow-up question. Can that kind of faith save him? In other words, can a person be saved with a say-so faith, a mere profession of faith, a mere profession of belief in Christ that produces no works, that produces no fruit, where there is no evidence, And James' answer is a resounding no. Now, to make sure there's no misunderstanding on this, look at the next statement in your notes. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's not faith plus works equals salvation, but faith producing works equals salvation. In other words, the point James is making is the faith that saves is the faith that works. He's just saying that when a person exercises genuine saving faith, regeneration takes place, a new birth takes place, transformation takes place, and there's going to be fruit, there's going to be works, there's going to be evidence. And there's absolutely no contradiction between James and the Apostle Paul who emphasized justification by faith alone. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you something. I think it's very simple. I think it brings great clarity on the point we're trying to make right now. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at probably the most familiar verses in the entire book of Ephesians. that All of you have heard many times before Verses 8, 9, and 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to circle three key phrases in these three verses. Go up to verse 8, circle by grace, by grace, and then circle through faith. Circle by grace, and then circle through faith, and then go to verse 10 and circle four good works. So by grace, through faith, four good works. Now, beloved, If you get these out of order, you are in trouble. But you have to realize they are all part of the equation. Salvation is by God's grace alone. And salvation is offered as an unmerited gift to be received through faith alone. But as we have already seen, that gift is Jesus Christ who is both Savior and Lord. Therefore, inherent in salvation is submission to the Lordship of Christ. And as Christ comes into my life, as I put my trust in what He did for me on the cross to pay for the penalty of my sin, as I submit to His authority to follow Him, He transforms my life. And He empowers me to do good works. And it is those works that provide the validation that my faith is genuine. 
See, in James 2, don't misunderstand. James is not contrasting faith and works. He's not. What he's contrasting is a say-so faith that produces nothing more than a lot of religious hot air over against a genuine faith that produces a person that loves, obeys, serves, and honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to your notes and let's look at James' first test. A profession of faith that does not produce love for others is a dead faith. A profession of faith that does not produce love for others is a dead faith. Look at James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has, no, it has not works, is dead being by itself. Again, that say-so faith, not genuine faith. Look at Galatians 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Notice, genuine faith expresses love to others in obedience to Christ. And why is that so? Why is that inevitable? Because inherent in salvation is what? Submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when a person truly submits to the Lordship of Christ, it shatters the it's all about me mentality. And it's replaced with a new perspective. It's all about Christ mentality. And now I seek to love others as Christ loved me as I follow Him. Genuine faith will wrestle with bitterness. It will wrestle with hatred. It will wrestle with prejudice and racism. But it will eventually overcome to express forgiveness, kindness, and love to all men in obedience to Jesus Christ. I mean, how foolish to claim, oh, I have faith in Christ to forgive me of my sin and bring me to heaven. But I don't have faith that Christ can empower me to love and forgive someone who has hurt me or wronged me. See, genuine faith not only puts me on the bridge to heaven, it also builds bridges to people I once hated. See, to profess faith in Jesus Christ without following Him as Lord to express love for others is the absolute epitome of deception and hypocrisy. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. It can't be said much clearer than this. We know that we have passed from death to life. That's referring to conversion. We know that we've passed from spiritual life, been brought into Christ's life. How? Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death, spiritual death, separated from God. Again, James' point is that genuine faith, it produces something. Works will validate the genuineness of your faith, and especially love for others. So a profession of faith that does not produce works of love, is a dead faith. Look at the second test. A profession of faith that does not produce a changed life is a useless faith. 
A profession of faith that does not produce a changed life is a useless faith. Look at James chapter 2, verses 18, 19, and 20. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James' point is very simple. You say you have genuine faith, then show me. Let me see your walk back up your talk. You know, our kids sing a chorus. If you're saved and you know it, then you're what? Life will surely show it. Someone said faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure see the results. You can't see faith, but you can see the results of true, genuine, saving faith. And the primary result is a changed life. And James drives this point home even further by referring to the demons, whose allegiance is to the devil. James' point is that even the demons are orthodox in their belief about God. The demons believe the facts of the gospel. They would affirm the truths about Jesus, who He is, what He did. But the demons, he says, also believe in what? They shudder. They find no peace. So although they believe the truths about Christ, although they would give assent to the facts of the gospel, are they saved? Of course not. James is simply saying genuine faith involves much more than just giving intellectual assent to the truths about Christ. It's much more than just being emotionally moved. Those things are involved, yes. But it's got to get to the point where what? My will surrenders to follow Christ as my Lord. Look at the next statement in your notes. Genuine faith includes repentance. And repentance is a turning away from sin to follow God, resulting in a changed lifestyle. Look at the, the next series of verses. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 13, 3. He says, and you will perish. You will perish too unless you repent of your sin and turn to God. Look at Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He extends his invitation in Acts 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, now repent of your sins and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Will you please notice the order? You repent from something to turn to something. What do you turn from? Sin, going your own way. You give up your independence. You turn to what? In faith, embrace Christ, submitting to His authority, putting your trust in what He's accomplished for you. And when that happens, what? He what? He wipes away your sin. There's forgiveness. And then there's that refreshing from the Lord. He's transforming, regenerating power. The miracle of the new birth takes place. But that miracle, the new birth, that transformation that God does in the human heart will never take place apart from a person willfully turning from his sin to place his trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is remembering the conversion 
of the uh, Christians there in Thessalonica, and he says, you turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. And it's amazing if you're familiar with the first chapter of Thessalonians, and by the way, beginning in June, uh, we're going to uh, do a book study of uh, First Thessalonians. It should take us the entire summer, if not uh, a little longer. But if you read that first chapter, as a result of them turning from their idols to follow Christ in genuine faith, what do you see in their lives? Works of faith, labors of love, and perseverance of hope. And then look at Matthew 3, verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you repented of your sins and turned to God. See, the problem in easy believism is there's no repentance. There's no message of repentance. But inherent in genuine faith is repentance, a turning from sin to follow Jesus as Lord, which results in the new birth and a changed lifestyle. Anything less than that is a bogus faith. And that's why you have multitudes of people that claim to be Christians, but their lives are indistinguishable from this world. They've made some profession of faith, but there's been no alteration, no change in their behavior. Patrick Morley, in his book, I Surrender, wrote, The church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. It is revival without reformation, without repentance. Do you remember the quote last Sunday from George Barna about easy believism? and its neglect of repentance, he said the consequences has been millions who said the prayer, asked for forgiveness, and went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. Charles Spurgeon wrote, If the man does not live differently from what he did before, I'll read that again, If the man does not live differently from what he did before, His repentance needs repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Now, we went through a study of 1 John. We saw this doesn't mean that we don't battle with sin, that we don't struggle, that we don't have our ups and downs. But it's very clear what it's saying. A true believer, because of God's work in his heart, he's changed. Now his life is inconsistent with sin, and that's which displeases God. And God's given him a new heart that loves God, that seeks after God, that hungers God. A person's greatest passion now becomes Jesus, to follow Him, to honor Him, to exalt Him. And yes, we will struggle, and yes, we will fail. But when you back off and you see the tenor of a man's life, Christ wins, because Christ has conquered that individual. That individual is Christ's captive. And Christ leads to victory. Look at Matthew 7, verses 16 and 20. Jesus said it this way. You will know them by their what? Not their words, not their profession, but by their fruits. 
Yeah, I'll tell you something fascinating. I'll challenge anybody on this point. Do you know, you can go from cover to cover in the Bible, you'll never find one time where you're ever encouraged to go back to your profession of faith to find assurance for salvation. Never once. You know what the Bible does exhort you to do? Look at your life now. Is there the validating proof by the way you have lived that God is at work in your life, that you've experienced regeneration, the new birth, transformation? That's where you find assurance of salvation. By the way, when James asked the question in verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The word useless is argos in the Greek text, and it carries the idea of being without fruit, of lack of productivity. In other words, a profession of faith that does not produce fruit, that does not produce a changed life, again, is a bogus faith. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 19, this verse isn't in your notes, but in Matthew 7, 19, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what have we learned so far? First, a profession of faith that does not produce love for others is a dead faith. Second, a profession of faith that does not produce a changed life is a useless faith. And this brings us to our third point. Genuine faith, genuine faith, our third point, is not determined by a person's talk, but by a person's walk. Genuine faith is not determined by a person's talk, but by a person's walk. Now, to drive this home, James gives two illustrations from two very different people, the first being Abraham. Abraham, it says, we're, we're told, proved the genuineness of his faith. How? By surrendering to God what was most precious to him, his son. Abraham proved the genuineness of his faith by surrendering to God what was most precious to him, his son. Look at James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected, and the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, again, don't get confused here. You say, okay, that, that seems like he's contradicting Paul and justification by faith alone. No. Go back to our Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 formula. It's what? By grace, through faith, for works. Where is Paul putting the focus in his writings? On the first part of that formula, that it's by grace, through faith alone, that no man can gain God's favor by doing good works. It's on, by virtue of the mercy of God, demonstrated to us by Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. And now God offers that gift of Jesus to us. What James is focusing is on the latter part of that equation. That genuine faith produces something. That yes, it is by grace. Yes, it is through faith, but it's for good works. And that genuine saving faith will always be demonstrated, will always be validated by fruit, by works, by obedience, by actions. And you see this very, very clearly here. It's interesting when he says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's it from Genesis 15. 
The offering of Isaac, his son, is in Genesis 22. There were, there were years between those two events. Years. He didn't have a descendant. You know the story. And God said, Abraham, go outside, look up at the stars, try to count them. I'm giving you a promise. As the stars are, so shall you be your descendants. I'm going to give you a son. Deadness of Sarah's womb. But he says he refused to stagger in unbelief. He gave glory to God, believing he was able to perform that which he promised. And God says it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But then he demonstrated that his faith was genuine through the tenor of his life. And then especially in the offering of Jacob. Now, did he have ups and downs? Yes. First and foremost, his little episode with Hagar his wife's handmaid, trying to take matters into his own hand and raising up a seed in Ishmael. And God said, no, you got it wrong. But when you step back and you see Abraham's life, what? His faith was genuine. He hung in there with God because God had embraced him and would not let him go. And I love that phrase, and you might want to circle it. It's a key phrase. It says, faith was perfected talking about his faith was perfected. The word perfected is teleos in the Greek text, and it simply means that something has accomplished the desired outcome, which is what it was created to do. In other words, it's just simply saying, faith is not an end in and of itself. The goal of faith is to produce something. It's to produce fruit. It's to produce works. It's to produce a life that honors and glorifies God. And he's saying his faith was perfected in this moment when he was willing to offer even his son, whereas all of his hopes were, all of his dreams, all the promises of God. He was willing to offer that. And God at that time said, what? Now I know that you fear me, Abraham, that you will not even withhold your only son from me. And then you remember how he looked and the ram was called in the thicket as God stayed his hand. And in Isaac's place, that ram was sacrificed, a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. But see, Abraham's faith was perfected in this action. It, it came to its desired end, its outcome. Demonstrate, I, I even think of the passage we looked at last time. Remember when Jesus said, anyone who loves father or mother more than me, anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is what? Not worthy of me. Nor is the man who refuses to take up his cross deny himself, and follow me. So Abraham proved that his faith was genuine because he obeyed God in submitting to his lordship, his authority, and willing even to offer that which was most precious to him. The second illustration involves Rahab. Rahab proved the genuineness of her faith by receiving God's children and ministering to them at great cost at great cost and at great risk. Look at James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The story of Rahab is recorded in Joshua chapter 2. It's a story of how a Gentile prostitute, at great risk to her own life, aided a couple of Jewish spies who had been sent out to spy out the city of Jericho. Rahab demonstrated the genuineness of her faith in the living God, that she was turning from her idols. She was turning from her sin to follow the living God. She demonstrated that by receiving the spies, God's messengers, into her home and helping them escape. Now, the point in both illustrations is absolutely too obvious to miss. Genuine faith is not determined by a person's talk, but by a person's walk, by their obedience to God. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We, we emphasized these verses last week. We need to see them again. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. How do we know that we've come to know Him? If we keep His commandments, if we obey His commandments. The one who says, oh, I've come to know Him. I believe the facts of the gospel. I give assent to Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. But does not keep His commandments. He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now look at the conclusion, concluding statement. I think this is the simplest and truest definition that you could ever receive of genuine biblical faith. Genuine faith is simply trusting obedience. To me, this is undeniable in the scriptures. Matter of fact, Jesus in John 3, he even used these terms. He said, those who believe in me, and then the next verse said, those who obey me, obey me. Because faith produces something. The faith that saves is the faith that works. And, and trust and obedience are two sides of the same coin. If I've truly trusted, that trust is going to be demonstrated in obedience. That validates my faith. It demonstrates that it is genuine. Now, as we come to the invitation, let me share with you a verse. It's, again, not in your sermon notes. But you'll find this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very last chapter of 2 Corinthians. And it's in verse 5. And, and keep in mind, now listen, beloved. Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to church members. He's writing to people who attend worship. And he tells them, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. And that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. You know, I really appreciated uh, Cheryl Rutherford in the early service. She came forward in tears and said, Brother Andy, I just want to... Thank you for your message the last two weeks. She says, because I've always struggled with the assurance of my salvation. But she says, now I have assurance. Your messages have been so affirming to me that, yes, I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And the, and the reason I bring that up is, in, in sharing messages like this, I, don't have the, I have no desire to disturb anyone's genuine faith. 
And I hope if your faith is genuine, a message like this affirms it. Your heart rings with this truth. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. He is my greatest passion and pursuit. I do desire to exalt Him and to magnify Him. And yes, I can look at my life and see that my faith has been validated by fruit and by works and by, a, by love, a changed life, by my walk, by obedience. But I'll be very honest with you, if you're one of those that have been deceived by easy believism, I hope this message disturbs you. I hope it brings you out of that deception. I hope it disquiets you. I hope there's a wrestling on the inside. And if that is true, then realize, right now, God is here. And He's saying, here. I'm offering you the gift of my Son, Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven and came to this earth to die for the penalty of your sin, to die in your place. And He rose again, His Lord of all. And he that has the Son hath life here. The only question is, will you receive Jesus for who He is? Remember what we saw last week from Luke? The Savior is, remember the rest of it? Christ the Lord. The Savior is Christ the Lord. So if you're one of those individuals, see, people that embrace evil believers, they're not evil people. The biggest problem here has been preachers, has been teachers that have preached easy believism from our pulpits and on our TV broadcasts and our radio programs. And there are thousands of people, very sincere, that embraced easy believism, thinking they could get all the benefits of Christianity, but they've never submitted their lives to the authority of Jesus Christ, and they remain unregenerate. They've never known the miracle of the new birth because they've never received the gift God's offering, which is Jesus, who is Savior and Lord. So there it is. God's here. So maybe you're one of those that's sincerely been deceived, but I love you so much I'm trying to break through that deception right now in here. Here's my son. And my son is Savior and Lord. And are you willing to bow the knee to his authority, to submit to his authority, to serve his agenda, to seek his approval as you put your trust in what he accomplished for you on Calvary's hill? Father, speak to our hearts now. Lord, look into our hearts. Lord, for those who know genuine faith, affirm that in their hearts right now. For those that have been deceived by easy believism, Lord, bring conviction, disturb, disquiet. Break through that dark deception with the light and the glory and majesty and splendor of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. And Lord, may... They now receive you. As we looked last week, may they enter now through that narrow gate. It's so narrow, so low, a person must...